Amen. You have a seat. Hey, first of all, welcome to Morrison Heights. Uh, appreciate you coming. If this is your first time here, my name is Cindy Gatewood, and I'm the Associate College Minister here. Um, and let me say that I'm, I really appreciate you coming this week. I know it's uh, midterms, right before spring break. This would have been an easy week to skip, and I think it's an awesome statement that you're here making this a priority, making worship and fellowship with other believers a priority. That's awesome. So thanks for doing that. If uh, never never been before, we are in the middle of a new sermon series called Our Faith Works. I think it's a very catchy name, awesome name. Uh, our first suggestion was faith, what it ain't, but that was turned down by Drew because he is wise. Uh, but we called it Our Faith Works for a couple of reasons. First of all, we want you to know that your faith in Christ is good enough, that your faith works, that faith in what Christ has done in the cross is enough to make you right before God. What Jesus has done is enough. Our faith works. But also, our faith works, meaning that our faith is demonstrated in our life through what we do. We live out our faith. Our faith is put into action. And that's kind of what we're talking about tonight. If you were here last week, you heard Drew talk about the fact that the foundation of our faith is not a force. It's not just a tool that we can use. But the foundation of our faith is a person, Christ Jesus. That is what um, makes having faith worth having faith. Jesus, what he has done. Um, and we're going to kind of look at how this plays out in our daily lives. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have the word, you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to be jumping around a bunch um, so the people in the booth have their work cut out for them. But before we look into uh, the scripture, just a little bit of context. We, uh, scholars debate over who wrote the book of Hebrews. The early church really believed that it was Paul. Um, we're not really sure because it's different than what a lot of, the way a lot of people wrote, but that's because most people now don't think that the book of Hebrews was a letter. They think that it was a sermon. And so kind of if you can picture in your mind Paul or John or somebody else in the early church preaching this message to a congregation and then somebody writing it down, it's a lot, there's a lot more imagery in it than other books. It's very um, beautifully written, much like a sermon. It's really cool. But we have questions about those things. But what we do know is that it was written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to leave their new Christian faith and return to Judaism because of physical persecution and trials. And so these new believers were looking around. They were being persecuted. And they were saying, man, things were a lot easier when I was Jewish. I am thinking about hanging this Christianity thing up and going back to what I know and playing it safe. This is kind of what they had in mind. And whoever wrote Hebrews is saying... No, don't do that. And because of that, there's kind of this recurring theme, two of them. One is this hope that we have, this, in, this encouragement to endure in our faith to the end. Say, hey, in the end, it's worth it. Whatever may happen, it's worth it. Keep up the good fight. Keep on keeping on. Finish the race. All of these things. And the second point, which really is the foundation of all we're talking about, is that Christ is better. Period. Christ is better. Doesn't matter what you compare him to, Christ wins. And what the writer of Hebrews did is he pointed to all the things in Judaism and he said, Yeah, those things are awesome, but Christ is better. And so he pointed to Moses. He said, Yeah, Moses was a great leader. Moses was a great teacher, but Jesus is better. And he pointed to angels and he said, Yeah, angels are awesome, man. We we think highly of angels, but this is the truth. Jesus is better. 
And that is the theme of Hebrews. And man, that is the theme of our faith. Uh, the chapter that we're looking at, specifically Hebrews chapter 11, shows us how our understanding of the value of Christ gives us reason to remain in the faith. And the writer points at people who Scripture says are men and women of faith, and he says, okay, this is what their lives look like. So maybe some of y'all are here tonight, and you say, well, I don't know how strong my faith is. I don't know if I have true faith. I don't really know what that looks like. I don't know how I live that out. We can compare ourselves to other people now, but we don't know where they are. But the fact of the matter is, the Word of God points to these people, and they say these are people of faith. We know that they were in good standing before God because of their faith, and then we can look at how they live their lives and kind of compare in our own lives to see where we may stand in regards to who Jesus is and the promises that he makes us. Um, but before we get into the passage, I'm going to pray for us one more time, and then we'll get into it. Pray with me. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for these students, for bringing them here tonight, Lord. I thank you so much for giving us your word. Uh, Lord, I have shortcomings and significance. Lord, but I pray that you will um, conquer all those things, that your word will be preached tonight, Lord, and that your word will, will work over everything. Lord, I pray that we will hear about your promises and that we will cling to them, that we will get rid of distractions, Lord, and that you will do tremendous things in our heart, Lord. Encourage us, Lord, comfort us, help us learn tonight. And ultimately, Lord, help us glorify your name. Lord, thank you for all that you do. And it's in your wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Good deal. All right, Hebrews chapter 11. Like I said, I'm going to bounce around a lot, but I'll be sure to let you know where I'm going. Starting in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So we introduce faith. Let's skip down a little bit to verse 7. And it reads like this. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promises as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Let's skip down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering of his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Let's go down to verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured to seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Okay, we're going we're gonna to hold up 
right there. And we're going to look at, at, at those specific examples, and we're going to look at a, a few different uh, passages in, in this chapter. Um, but that's where we're going to start, okay? And we're going to start with theology, what this teaches about God and man. We're going to talk about application after that. So the first thing I want you to know is this. True faith is grounded in the belief that God will do what he has promised. Okay, and that's the kicker. True faith is grounded in the idea that God will do what he has promised. Man, throughout this passage, we see that faith does not begin with us, but it begins with God. Faith starts with who God is. It is God who works first in our lives because he issues a promise. Without God speaking to us, we have no reason to have faith. It's grounded in who God is and what he has said. Our faith begins with our God and his promises. We can look in this passage and see this, okay? Like we, we, we saw Noah, okay? God warned him of rain. He said that it was coming, it was going to fill the earth, and that Noah needed to build an ark. So what did Noah do? He obeyed. This is crazy, okay? Like Noah had never seen rain before. Noah didn't know what rain was, and all of a sudden God is telling him to build this boat, and Noah's like, cool. And the only evidence that he had to go by was that he knew God was true to his promises. And that is what his faith hinges on. We go to Abraham. God told Abraham to leave his home to receive an inheritance from God. He said, look, you're going to go over here. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Abraham said, I trust this God. All right, you got it. That same promise is what protected Abraham when he was commanded to offer up his son. He said, yes, I can do this because God has promised me to keep him safe. So we are good. We will do this. He trusted that God would provide something because he knew that he would keep his promises. Sarah, she was way past the the age to give birth. And God says, hey, you're going to have a kid. First, she laughs at this. But then we see that God works in her life and that she says, this God who has promised me a child is faithful. So it looks like I'm going to have a kid. And she begins to live in a way that that is connected to that fact. Moses God told him that the blood of the Passover lamb would protect the Israelites from the spirit of death. Okay, that's a, that's a weird thing to do if God doesn't tell you to do it, right? Like wiping blood over your front door. But because of what God has said, Moses says, okay, this is important. We need to do this. We need to implement this. This is right. Uh, the Israelites, they crossed the Red Sea because they believed that God would fulfill his promise to free them from the Egyptians. All of these examples start with the fact that God comes to these people and says, hey, I'm going to do this. Trust that. Live this way. And they say, yes, God, you are faithful. Uh, and these are just a few examples. I, I feel like sometimes, like, uh, I know for me, like, when I read this chapter, I kind of I think, like, this is it, right? Like, these are the all-stars of faith. But, man, this isn't, like, five of, like, ten examples, these are just a few examples of, an, uh, of a, a number too big to count of people who have lived their lives in response to God's faithfulness. Man, there are people today who are still living their lives um, in a way that shows that they believe God is faithful to his promises. And we can join that number, but first we have to understand the promises of God. Okay, so what do I mean when we talk about that? Last week we talked about how our faith is found in a person, And that's true. Faith is rooted in who we believe our God is, okay? We believe that God is good, 
And so we trust that he will do what he says. Okay? But here's the caveat of that. True faith believes in what God has said and not what we want him to say. Okay? And we need to understand this. Uh, everything that God has told us he will do, he will do. I am confident of that. I can promise you that. I can say, yes, everything that God has promised to you will happen. But if God did not say it, then we don't know what he'll do. Okay? Um, in recent memory, the, the, the church has kind of taken faith up as a kind of a weapon against God. It's really weird. Not our church, but churches in general. I probably shouldn't say the church because this is not the true church. But churches ha- have done this. We, we act like if we have enough faith, then we can get God to do whatever we want, regardless of how he feels about the situation, right? What do we do? Well, we name it and claim it. That's what we do. We say, I believe with all my heart that I will have a 4.0 this semester. And that when I graduate school, I believe that God is going to give me a job first day I'm looking for it. And I believe that shortly thereafter, God is going to give me a husband or a wife that meets all of the arbitrary requirements that I have demanded. And since I believe that God will do this, if he doesn't, I'm going to be ticked at God because he lied to me. This is silly, man, but people do it on the daily, right? Like, I've been guilty of this. But the problem is God never said he would do any of those things. But, man, we cling to him. Ooh, we love it. Um, so let's talk about this a little more. What happens to this is when we don't study and we fail a class, or when finding a job is harder than we expected, we get mad at God for not fulfilling our expectations. But, but let us understand what faith is not. Faith is not expecting God to give us what we want and then being mad at him when he doesn't. Uh, let me give you an example. So before college ministry, I was in youth ministry, and if you have ever been involved in youth ministry, you know the kind of guy that I'm about to describe. But sermon's over, everybody's kind of hanging out, having a good time, everybody's laughing, and then there's always that one kid who's like, ha, 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 hey, uh, youth minister, you got a minute? I really need to talk. Like every week, you know, like he always has something that he needs to talk to the youth minister about, and it's like urgent. All right, this was this kid. And I had just spoken about money, and then sure enough, five minutes after we dismissed, he was like, hey man, you got a minute, I really need to talk to you about something. I'm like, great. Uh, I was a wonderful youth minister, as you can tell. But we go to my office, and apparently the things that I had said about money bothered him, and this is why. Uh, Because he looked at me, and he was able to tell me with all sincerity well, you see, Timothy, um, I'm different than other people. And I go, okay, tell me more. And he said, well, I know that God's plan for my life is for me to be very wealthy. Yeah, so you can't laugh at people when they tell you those things in youth ministry. Like, you have to sit there and, like, stone face. And this guy told me that, and he used the words extremely wealthy. He talked about Lamborghinis, Ferraris. Okay, so I'm talking about exorbitantly wealthy. And I said, okay, uh, why do you think that? 
And he gave me several answers that can all be summed up by me saying because he wanted it. Like, th- like that was it. He, he, this is what he wanted in his life. He was poor. He wanted money. And he said, hey, I'm living this way. I believe in God. I have faith in God. And so he's got to give this to me. I got him on a technicality. Am I right? Am I right? That's kind of what he was doing. Aside of that story, just to kind of show you where he was coming from, a few weeks later, he, he started asking me these really weird questions about different aspects of God that were very just off the wall, but very structured. And I was like, oh, this is weird. And I answered, and I went home, and I told my roommate, because that's what youth ministers do. Like, when they get this kid to ask silly questions, like, they talk about it. Uh, and so I go home, and I ask my roommate, hey, this is what this kid brought up. Isn't this weird? And he was like, oh, I love that show. And I was like, huh? And he said, that's season three of the TV show Supernatural. That's where he's getting his theology from. And that's what was, like, motivating this dude. Like, all of these things that he had got pictures of God from television and from other people and all of these weird things. And so he just believed whatever he wanted to believe about God. And he would say, well, God's going to do whatever I think he's going to do. He got his theology from everywhere but the word of God. He listened to everybody but God describing who God is. He made it up. Abraham didn't just decide to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice before God. The Old Testament would have been very different if that had been the case. It hinged on what God had told him to do. We can look at verse 29 in this passage specifically and kind of see this. Okay, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So we see two different people groups commit the same action. Okay, They both attempt to cross the Red Sea that God had parted. However, God had led Israel there to cross it and not the Egyptians. So they took the same action, made the same decision, but that promise was not for the Egyptians. And regardless of how much the Egyptians believed that they were going to get across that water, the water was coming down on them because that was not meant for them. Likewise, the Israelites could cross safely, not because of anything they did, but because of who God is. God is faithful to his promises. God promised to free the Israelites from Egypt. He provided a way the Israelites could trust it, but it all hinges on what God promised. But this offers an issue, okay? Because if we believe that God will do what he has promised, but we don't want to put words in God's mouth of what that promise is, the question is, how do we know what he has promised? And we have two different spectrums here. We have God doesn't talk to people anymore, so how do we know what he promises? And we have God has told me a very specific thing in my life that I believe comes from him. How do I know if it's really from him? And both, uh, both have the same issue and result and answer, and it's this. Everything we know to be true goes back to the word of God. It all goes back to his word. His word is sufficient, his word is beneficial, and his written word is his promises. Everything we can hold to as truth stems from his word. God has spoken to you individually, and he's gone a step further in writing it down so that you would not be without it, so that you would not forget, so that you could remind yourself of it in times of need. He has spoken to you. But man, if you're like me, I see this and I'm like, cool, God, put it on a shelf, walk away, go about my life. 
But these are how we know what God has promised to us. And here's my encouragement to y'all. Let's not replace like the timeless and true promises of God with just a desire for a better job or a new car thinking that that's what God wants for us, when in reality he has told us what he wants from us in his word. Which brings me to my, my, my second point. Um, true faith results in obedience, and true obedience is powered by faith. Okay, we're not saved by works. What, okay, I want to make sure everybody knows that. You can never earn salvation. You can never be good enough to be right before God. You can never get better and better and better to the point where you don't have to get better anymore. Not possible. You're not saved by works. You are saved by grace through faith. But these things don't oppose each other. And sometimes we act like they do, right? Like I've heard a lot of things like, well, Paul teaches about faith and James teaches about works. How are you going to solve that? But that's not the issue. Both of these things work together. When we look in this passage, how do we know who believed and who trusted in the promises of God? Well, I'll tell you, as soon as I find it. Those who lived their life accordingly, okay? Uh, let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, I proposed to Beth. Wave, Beth. Hello. Yes, show them the rock. There it is. What up? Okay. <laughs> I proposed to Beth. Thank you. Thank you for your applause. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and on that night when I proposed to Beth, uh, I promised her a few things. She was promised a wedding. And she was promised marriage, okay? And she immediately began living her life as if those things were fact, okay? Have they happened yet? No. Is it a promise that is coming? Yes. And I know that Beth took it seriously because the next day she went out and bought a dress, okay? So I got to show up. <laughs> she... Um, booked, a, a, booked a venue, we took engagement pictures, we had to find addresses to people we haven't talked to in 15 years because we had to invite them to showers that we throw ourselves, which is crazy, but that's what being engaged is. And we see this, and we know that she believes that we are getting married. And more so than just believing that promise, she believes me. She trusts me that I'm going to fulfill my promise. Okay, on the flip side, if I had proposed to Beth and she had been like, eh, all right, and then never made any plans, never bought a dress, never booked a venue, never met my family, I would assume that she did not take me very seriously, that she would think that my promise did not amount to much. Likewise, when we believe the promises of God we begin to live as if those promises are fact. Okay, we see similar examples within this passage. We know Noah believed God because he built the boat. Okay? We know Abraham believed God because he moved and began to offer his son as a sacrifice. We know Moses and the Israelites believed God because they crossed the Red Sea. And we can go further. Verses 32 Starting in verse 32, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And it goes on and it talks about how they even endured beatings, imprisonment, 
and death. So we know that they believe the promises of God because they live their lives accordingly. And we can point to things that they did and we can say, yeah, they knew that God was going to fulfill his promise. They didn't do these things to earn anything. When Beth bought a dress, she was not trying to earn a wedding. She was just living in light of the promise that she had been given. They did these things because God told them to and they trusted what God says. Okay, this still affects us today. The reason that we fight sin is because God has told us that sin is destructive and we believe him. So we fight sin. The reason we evangelize is because God has told us that that is our job and we trust that God would not give us a job that's a waste of our time. The reason that we read scripture is because he has said that is how we can know him and his promises better. And so we do these things. We're not earning anything, but it's because we believe him when he says what he says. We believe that every command made to us in scripture is worth following because the God who commanded it is worth following. We are not just obeying randomly. We are obeying because we trust God when he speaks. And so we even obey the ones that are hard. We do this not to police our morality or to become very pious or religious or to become better than the next guy, but because we trust that God understands what is good for us better than we do. We trust that he knows what he's talking about. Okay, so combine the first thing and the second, first point and the second point. Let's not add to the commands or promises of God. Let's not put words in God's mouth. But man, let's live according to every single command and promise that he has given because we trust that he is good. Let's live in that life. And number three, true faith continues even when we cannot see the big picture. Let's look at verse 13 real quick. I'm going to read 13 through 16. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And let's go over to verse 37. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what has promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All right, here's the truth about this passage. Nobody listed in this passage lived to see what had truly been promised them. They all saw glimpses. They saw little insights of what God was doing. But man, they did not see the culmination of how God was working. But they were still looking ahead to when their promises would be completed. Let, let's think about context for a second, okay? The writer of Hebrews is talking to Jewish Christians who want to leave their faith. And then he says, hey, uh, a lot of these guys, they died waiting for the promises. They did but they still live their lives accordingly. Because he knows that just because they died does not mean that they will not see it happen. 
because they, he, even the writer, is looking to future glory. A cool thing about this is that we are in a much better position than any of those people. These people who lived remarkable lives of faith, we have it better than them. Right now, you are living, you and me are living, in a time where we have the most access to the written promises of God out of anyone ever in human history. No one has access to the Word of God the way this group of people do right now at this very moment, from the beginning of time. We are blessed. We can be constantly reminded about what God has done. And this is what we know has happened. Okay? Everything in the lives of these faithful people pointed to one moment, and we know what that moment was. Okay? The lives of Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, all of them pointed to Jesus. Noah, being warned of God's wrath coming, was given protection by God, reminds me of Jesus. Abraham asked to sacrifice his one son to God, sounds like Jesus. Moses, being told that the blood of the Passover lamb was enough to keep us from death, Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, Jesus. All of the promises of God point to Jesus. These people live their lives not knowing what God was going to do through Christ. We live our lives knowing what Christ has done for us. We know that he has been faithful to the promises that he has given. We've seen it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on a little pet peeve of mine. I want to be gentle with this because, uh, I mean, this is a good thing to do, but I'm, it's still kind of a pet peeve. Uh, when people just assume that Christian faith is just dumb or, like, blind, you know? Like, we're say, like, we have no reason to think anything, and we're just like, oh, you know, we're Christians. We just believe, and there's nothing to back this up. This is not how God works. God has given us Hebrews 11 so that we can point to these people and say, man, God has been faithful every time he has ever spoken. God has a perfect track record. There is nothing blind or dumb about that. Like, we can see what God has done, and we can see how well God has kept his promises leading up to Jesus. This means that we can trust when God's timeline does not line up with our own. When God does not act the way we anticipate or at the time that we want him to, we can still have faith that he will fulfill his promises and that it will be better than we can imagine and by far worth the wait. These people have been given to us as a reminder and encouragement that we can have faith even when we forget about how faithful God has been. We can look back on their lives and we can see how they were empowered to live not knowing Jesus. And it can push us to live all the more for God's glory because of Jesus. A um, couple more things is how this applies to our life. And then we'll be done. Um, Christians hold to the promises of God as truth. All right, brother, sister in Christ, you can trust what God has promised as fact. Especially when you don't feel like you can. Okay? Scripture says that the heart is susceptible of all things. And man, at some point, your hearts are going to make you feel that God is not going to accomplish his goals, that he's not going to fulfill his promises. Man, wrong. 
According to the book of Hebrews, God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. This means that we can read in his word that he will be our refuge, our ever-present help in time of trouble, and we can trust it. Fact. This means that when we read that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age, fact. Never not with us. Always true. This means that when we, we read that his word will not return void, fact, all the time, never return void, ever. Truth. And we can trust that he has said, that he has meant all of these things. This means that we can trust every promise that we read in scripture that is directed to us. If it's a promise for the church and you are in the church, you can take it to the bank. Fact. Done. As if it's already been done. And this is the last thing I want to tell you. Christians can look forward to the day that the promises are fulfilled in full. And this is awesome. Okay. The promises of God are not yet fulfilled, even with what Christ has done so far. And this is crazy. Okay. Like, let's think about what Christ has already done for us and then know that God has said, hey, I'm not even done yet. That the fact that we have been covered by the blood of the Lamb, that we are safe from the wrath of God, that we can have hope, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, like all of these things, know that we can be redeemed and be made into new creations, and then know that God still has more planned for the sake of his glory and our benefit. That greater things are yet to come. So then we read the promises that haven't happened yet with anticipation and excitement. When we, we read that Christ will come again, fact, we can cling to it. When we read that he will wipe away every tear, trust it. When we read that he will pour out wrath on all sin, we can trust it. It's going to happen. And when we read that the church will join him for a wedding banquet, fact. It's coming, and we can celebrate it as if it's already happened, and we can look forward to it in our future. Man. Uh, since we're about to go for some spring break mission trips, let me tell you a quick little story. When I was a senior in MC, I went to Haiti over spring break. Man, if you ever get a chance, you should. Awesome trip, great experience. I'm excited about the people who are going this year. Um, and when I went, we worked at an orphanage that was run by an American, and she had resources that the other orphanage did not have, and so she dealt mainly with children with uh, mental and physical handicaps. And so I get there, we're in the orphanage, we see a lot of healthy kids running around, and then we round the corner and we see a dozen, maybe more, uh, handicapped children in wheelchairs, being cared for, having everything done for them. That's their life. And at first, this kind of rocks me, right? I, w I wasn't mentally prepared for it. I round the corner, I see that, and I'm like, okay, not prepared for this. Let's do it. And I just kind of jump in, and I look at it, I'm like, man, this is such a rough situation. I don't know how to respond. And then a girl who had been on the trip the year before, like, hits me on the shoulder, and she's like, hey, watch this. And she walks up in this group of, of handicapped children, and she says, hey, my name's Aaron, and I'm here to talk to you about Jesus. And their faces light up. Children who cannot communicate to one another. Man, when they hear the name of Jesus, nothing but smiles. A physical reaction to the name of Jesus. Because they know more than me the hope that is attached to the name 
of Jesus. Man, they know what Jesus means to them, that he will wipe away every tear, that he will restore all that is broken physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And they could react to it. Oh, man. And when I think about it, I always, like, say the same thing. Like, on the day of glory, when Christ comes and we see him for who he is, there's very little doubt in my mind that those kids are going to run faster to Jesus than me. Kids who have never been able to run before, who have never been able to walk before, on that day, man, they are going to get up and they are going to fly to Jesus because they have been waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. They've been looking forward to this day for a long time. And man, that gets me pumped. Look, when we're in our darkest places, those are the times that we need to most remember that God is good and that he will fulfill his promises. We talked about this in the past a little bit on Sunday in, in our group. And if you think, like, the Christian life is easy, brother, you ain't living the Christian life, all right? Like, like anybody who says, like, yeah, fighting sin, not that hard. Oh, I'll call you out real fast. You ain't fighting sin. Like, anybody who has put it to the test, like, they know that it is a struggle. And this is why the promises of God are so encouraging that one day we'll be made whole and we will not be tempted and we can fight sin and we can win. And that we can look forward to that day. So in those moments when we're struggling, we can look forward to when God fulfills every promise that not only he made to Abraham and Noah and Moses, but to Timothy and Drew and Beth and all of us here today, that he will fulfill them all. And ultimately, the reason that we have faith is because our God is faithful to every promise that he has ever made. They will be done. Hey, I'm going to pray for us real quick. Um, the band's going to come up and, and then lead us to another song. Um, and let's just think about the promises that he has made us. And let's go to the God who will fulfill all of these promises. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you so much for being a God who tells us what he's going to do and then does it. For a God who does not deceive, but a God who allows us to take part in his goal and his mission, constantly reminding us of what he is planning to do through Christ and through his church, and thank you for letting us be a part of it. Lord, we love you. Well, I pray for the people in this room who are struggling with, with doubt or with fear that you will not come through and that you will, Lord. I pray that you will let them see that in their personal lives, that you are worthy of following, and that you will be faithful to them and your word. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you do. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.